Well, good morning, family. I am excited this morning. All of you here, good to see you. And those of you who are watching online, I'm glad you're with us this morning as well. I'm, uh, I need your prayer. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask for your Holy Spirit's help. I ask that, Lord, as I, Lord, share this morning, that, Lord God, you would guide and anoint, and, Lord, you'd be glorified in all that we do. That's our desire and goal. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, um, if you've seen the title, it's Holding a Politically Biblical Worldview. That's what we're doing this morning. And, um, and understand that today is going to be a little bit different. Especially if you're a guest, if this is your first time here, um, well, you're getting a different kind of service. And normally, we will take a portion of Scripture and we'll work through that portion of Scripture and as the Word of God speaks to us. Today, we're going to be in a lot of different places in the Scripture as we're pulling out points about really, I think, an important and relevant subject uh, today. With the election coming on Tuesday, I thought it would be important for us to bring up biblical views on some of the main points that are, that, that are before us. And most of you have already voted, so it's probably not going to change if anybody. You know, very few people's actually uh, vote. Um, some of you are waiting to vote. And let's say, and, uh, other than local issues, local uh, decisions that are being made, since we're in California, in probability is that uh, the presidential election will, will have little effect on it. So that's not the reason I'm actually doing it. I'm not trying to um, bring a, you know, force you or, or coerce you into voting a certain way, what I want to do is give you, a, give you some biblical principles. I will be sharing my view. I want you to know this, that what I'm about to teach is not official endorsement by the church or the, our denomination of one candidate or party. This is my view of the teaching of Scripture. And it might be offensive, and you might disagree, but I would fight for your right to disagree, and I would hope you would do the same for me. Um, people have different political views, and they have always been and always will be welcome here. If you have a different political view than mine, we are still, can still be brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's the most important thing. Your party, party preference is not a litmus test to being a Christian. Um, odds are that 15% of you, according to statistics and, the, and the, the vote last year with evangelical Christians, 15% of you will disagree with what I have to say. But I can also say over the next year, 100% of you will disagree with me at one time or another. Even my wife. So... It's just a, it's, it's a reality, and our disagreements does not, you know, limit our ability to fellowship by any means. 
But I think what we're talking about today is bigger than politics. And, uh, but what we want to look at is how does your views and vote line up with Scripture themselves? How does that happen? Only 59% of evangelicals voted in the last presidential election. That means, unfortunately, 41% did not vote at all. And, um, and not to vote, and I've, I've seen some, some people who have disappointed me, some leaders like John Piper, who, who's, who basically said, it's, you know, he wasn't voting for anybody and we shouldn't vote. I want you to understand that people who are against Christianity... Atheists who are, who are um, not all atheists are like against Christianity. They just believe as atheists. But there are many. There are agnostics. There are, there are people who completely and, and, and totally are antichrist against the church. I guarantee they're not telling each other, hey, just don't vote for anybody. They're voting. And if we don't vote, we give them double vote power. If we don't put our influence in it, then what we're doing is basically letting them run the country. I think that's been the problem. I think the church has been afraid to stand up and say anything. I think, I think pastors have been, for whatever, um, ignoring their responsibility in duty. What I'm sharing today, you've heard in some ways, not in such a, 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 a total uh, put together of these things in this way, but you've heard me talk about issues that are biblical issues that deal with things that are against culture, things that we've already talked about that are things that are, you know, pe people would just simply say that they are controversial. Well, if the Bible speaks it, then it's my responsibility to share it, to teach it. And so we're doing that. In fact, the church for nearly 200 years, pastors stood up on a regular basis. Usually it was annually, not every four years, but annually, and gave a message where they talked about the issues of the day from a political view and gave a biblical view of it. Eventually that stopped happening. There became more and more who became concerned about putting politics in to the church, and I understand that, but not the biblical principles, and not even not saying, even the church not standing up for political views. It, it, after all, the, the, the fact that, that, the, that James Madison, you know, wrote uh, the, the uh, you know, part of and was instrumental in the con writing the Constitution, he was forced to, by the Baptists, to, to put in the Bill of Rights. The Baptists coerced, in fact, said to him, you will not represent us at the state level in, in the Continental Congress. You will not represent us if you do not put together the Bill of Rights and bring it. And that's the reason we have the Bill of Rights is because of the Baptist church. The church has always been involved, very much so. It is why we have the First Amendment of the Constitution, as well as other things. It is, 
it, 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 we, we believe that our laws and our rights come from God. Now, the, the, um, spirit, the battle, though, is not political. I believe it's spiritual. I believe there's a battle against evil that is going on. It's much bigger than politics itself. Edmund Burr said this, the only thing for, to, for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. I believe that's true. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in Germany, who was part of the German resistance who opposed Nazi Germany, said this, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak not to act is to act. The Nazis executed Bonhoeffer in 1945 at the age of 39 because he stood up what was for what was right. What was right. A little over a week ago, I was kind of inspired by a friend in the opposite direction of what he probably wanted it to go. He, uh, he's a pastor. He's been a friend of mine for many years. I knew him when I was in Bible college. And um, in fact, um, you know, have golfed with him, had ministered with him at different times. And, uh, but he wrote this, and he wrote in his post, and he's, he was writing about his view, which is really contrary to my view, on, on much of the most important issues that face us at this time. He said, some Christian friends may point to the abortion policies espoused by Democrats and question my pro-life convictions. But politics is not a single-issue enterprise. And the Bible presents a stark contrast between godly and ungodly behaviors far more extensively than simply about the unborn. Now, I... I do understand where he's coming from in saying that. I totally disagree with him in that. And as we conversed about things, I discovered that in, in the case of him, but more than him, because he is probably really, he's very well thought out in at least his argument. And I think it's easy to tear apart, but at least he thinks. Um, the, the point is, there are many. I, I have a relative that, um, that, when, that has been a, and you're going to see where I'm coming from here, has been a Democrat for her whole life. Her parents were Democrats. She's a, she's a relative. She's my aunt, actually. And, uh, and my aunt, who I love dearly, uh, we've had our discussions about political things, and she's strong on her belief system. But as we went down the list of issues that we're dealing with, we found out that she actually opposed most of, the majority of the issues, in fact, the main issues uh, that had to do with the, the policies or the agenda of the Democratic Party. So she, even though she was, is Democrat and is 
voting Democrat the main issues she no longer agrees with. I grew up in that environment. I grew up as a Democrat. My dad worked for uh, the UAW. He was a union representative. It was his responsibility to push for Democratic uh, you know, leaders, and they did. He was, he was very highly involved in politics and led several campaigns himself. He was the leader of the campaigns. I remember as a kid riding along in uh, Senator John Tunney's mo- uh, motorhome and, uh, and going out and putting out signs all around Orange County with my dad early on. We were very strongly in that camp. But somewhere along the line, I have felt that the Democratic Party left me. And I don't think I left the Democratic Party. I believe the Democratic Party left me. And as I go over these biblical principles, I want you to see in many cases, they were, the Democratic Party was actually on the opposite side of what they are right now. Not that many years ago. Not that many years ago. There's been a drastic change. And, um, and, and I think in, an, in order to hold on to power, um, which is kind of what both parties do, right? They try to hold on to power by getting the most people to, to join in with them. So um, I, wanna, I want to go down this, and I'm going to ask you to consider the issues above everything else. We'll talk about the person, the personality, and those kinds of things. But last, last election, 81% of evangelicals supported Trump. 16% supported Clinton, and 3% supported independents and others. Talking about the evangelicals. Bible-believing, and I know that we're, evangelicals are not the only Bible-believing, but, but we're Bible-believing followers of Christ as a whole, percentage-wise, 81% followed Trump. Now, It's my job to teach God's word, especially regarding moral trends of our culture and nation. I've I've never held back on that. And from teaching teaching the clear word of God, which I believe is essential. Um, There are, the, the scripture tells us in Numbers 22 and verse 12, it says, God told Balaam, do not go with them, You are not to curse these people, for they have been blessed. The the background is that Balaam was a prophet, and he was hired by the king of of Midian, as uh, uh, Balak, to curse the children of Israel. He figured if he could get this man, who was this prophet of God, to curse the people, then he could attack them and he could win the, the battle. Balaam went to do that, and God stopped him and said, you are not to curse what I am blessing. Because Israel was under the blessing of God. In fact, Israel has been blessed above all other nations. America has been blessed above all other nations 
except for Israel, when Israel was under its, when it was fully under uh, submission to the word of God, to the law of God, and to God's will. When Israel did that, they were blessed above all people. We as a nation have been blessed above all nations through the history of our nation, but we haven't been fully blessed. There are things that have kept the full blessing of God from our nation, and we'll talk about some of that. But there have been these things that the Bible is very clear about and that, that I want to bring to our attention that have caused the curse of nations and caused the curse of peop on people, that has resisted, that has pulled back the full blessing of God on people. And there's five categories, five things I want to talk about. The first one is this. It is the spilling of innocent blood. The sanctity of life. I, wanna, I want to address something before I go any further. Because whenever you talk about this subject, we have had in our nation over, I, a, a low number is 61 million. That's the one that's thrown out. But, but they didn't always um, record all the abortions early on. So 61 million since Roe v. Wade have, have died uh, unborn children. That means this. In this room, there are, without question, probably women who have had abortions. I know that's true in our church. We have ministered to people in our church. And over the, the course of time, I know we've ministered to more, more, than a, more than 100 women who have had abortions. In fact, we had a ministry that actually hundreds of women went through at one season and we ministered to women who had discovered that what they had done was sin and was wrong. They, that many of them had carried the shame of that in their life. And I know there are women, even today, that struggle with that. Once they recognize what had happened and what they had done. And they've come to God and the wonder of, of Jesus is his grace and his mercy. And that nobody needs to live in their past sin that under the blood of Jesus they can move forward and know that God has forgiven them. We've actually realized that many of the women who have actually gone through abortion and now have found the freedom in Jesus have been the most ardent in opposition to abortion. Many of them have become people who minister to other women who are considering abortion and have gone through those things. And I've seen wonderful things happen as women have found that, that Jesus, is, his cleansing and his forgiveness is, is total and complete. And they move forward in their life. But I'm always aware of the fact that when I talk about this subject, that there are women that this is very painful for. And I would hope that you would look forward and 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 understand that the word of God is true. Whether we have followed it or not, it is still true. We do not make, the, uh, make decisions based upon what in fact, you know, makes us feel less guilty for our sin. We hold to the truth of God's word completely and totally as people of God. And so the, the issue is what is found in, in Luke chapter 9 kind of has been... Um, for me, a, a little bit of, help me understand something that has permeated our nation. 
The story is that Jesus and his disciples, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. They were going through Samaria. Samaria were the, you know, the half-breeds that had kind of uh, had their own kind of religion. And, and they, when they came, they completely um, rejected Jesus. And uh, other than you remember the story of the woman at the well, but, but that one woman, how the, the city did. But at this point, they had rejected Jesus. In fact, they had not taken Jesus in, which was just hospitality-wise. The disciples, it says, but it says in, in verse 53, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said... Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did? Now, I don't know how they kind of thought that they could do this. But they were asking Jesus, probably for, for a little bit of power here. Hey, Lord, would you want us to just say, we'll call down fire and just wipe them out. You know, crispy critters, we got it all planned. You know, but he turned and rebuked them. And he said... You do not know the manner of spirit you are of. What manner of spirit didn't they know they were of? It was a spirit of murder. That that was not the spirit of Christ. Jesus would not have considered doing that. He, he, would con he, he had called them to love those people. And they were... Sur surrendering to, allowing for the spirit of murder, the spirit of darkness, the, the demonic spirit to guide and direct them. And Jesus called them out. See, America, as I said, has been the most blessed of all the nations in history other than Israel, fully blessed. And we have had our sins we have re we have at one time in fact our original sin i believe was a sin of slavery i believe that is our nat national origin of the sin of origin slavery the sin that we paid the greatest price for in our nation more people died to end this horrible sin percentage-wide, than have died in all the other wars that America's been in combined. We, we, we walked through that. I believe that was God pulling his hand until we got that one right, the hand of blessing, and it cost us dearly with our sin. I believe we have replaced that sin. We've replaced that sin, that, that, that origin of sin, with the sin of murder. I believe that is the sin. That is the most egregious sin. It is the sin of, of uh, annihilation, of generation of people. And that sin, interesting enough, has also been the greatest sin against, you know, perpetrated upon even the community that was originally those who were under slavery. More black babies have died for 
times the amount of black babies have died during that time than white babies. It was originally in by, by plan. It originally was planned by the starter of Planned Parenthood who decided and intentionally wanted to kill black, the black community, had a desire to kill, and she was a white supremacist, and she made sure that all the abortion clinics would be in the black community. And today, the majority of the abortion clinics are indeed in the black community. I'm not saying it's all about the African-American uh, community because it certainly is permeated across the nation. But I said there was an intentionality. This, this, this death spirit that has come upon our nation is hated by God. The scripture says in Proverbs 6, 16 through 18, he says, these six things the Lord hates in seven, and one of them, the hands that shed innocent blood. Innocent blood. Genesis 4, 9 says, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. I am, am I my brother's keeper? That's not my responsibility. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Slavery was America's original sin. Abortion is our reigning sin. It's America's holocaust. It is America's genocide. I've done a full study on it. I don't have time to do that. But if you are interested in walking through all the issues, the issues of like how, how can you, you know, the, the arguments that come up about abortion that are secular, the biblical arguments can't even be argued. The Bible is so clear on the fact that the unborn is in fact a child given by God, planned by God, purposed by God. It is no question. There is not really an argument on that level. From a secularist level, from a national level, there are arguments, but they fail too in every case. The argument that, that you cannot, in fact, tell a woman what she can't do or can do with her body. You do, we do that every day. We, we tell women you cannot, if you're holding your baby, you can't drop your baby. If you do that, that's criminal. But you say, that's my body. I can put my arms wherever I want to put my arms. No, you can't. You can't kill a child. You can't kill your neighbor. You say, well, that's my body. I can do what I want with my body. Yes, and you can go to jail and you can die for it. But it's not legal. Can we, if the child is in the body, if it's a human being, how can we take a child that is only separated by, you know, uh, less than a half of inch, inch separated from the world and decide because it's in the womb, it has, it, that we have a right to kill that baby. 
Well, well, I say this. The Bible says that it is a child. All of your arguments have to be the same whether the child is in the womb or out of the womb. In fact, in many of these cases now, according to, to um, some of the political views, it doesn't matter whether it's in the womb or out of the womb. The, the Democratic platform, we're talking about the platform, and the, which is Joe Biden's platform and it, that he supports particularly, is abortion for any reason for, or for no reason up to or even beyond the moment of death, I mean of birth, is legal. And, and I know that sounds, that sounds radical. That couldn't possibly be. Well, he and they, being the Democratic Party, opposed the effort in Congress to require doctors who perform abortions to provide medical care for babies who survive the abortion, opting rather to let the babies die outside the womb with no care. So if a child is being aborted, and this has happened many times, where a child is being aborted and it survives outside the womb. At that time, Congress was, was asking to make a law that the doctor had to protect the baby and help the baby to survive. But in that attempt, as Senate, the Senate put it forth, only three Democrats voted to protect the baby outside the womb. And Joe Biden supported the Democrats who oppose allowing for the baby to live outside the womb. Now, if you're already allowing for the baby to die outside the womb, at what age do you not allow a baby or a child to die? One year? Two years? When, when will you not provide for that child? Because it was the intent? In other words, the womb is not the issue anymore. And, in fact, there is one party that says that not only up until birth, while it's coming down the birth canal, it's legal. That's not an exaggeration. That is the facts. And he and they are pushing for also the repeal of the Hyde Amendment. This, this action would require all American taxpayers, including you and me, to fund abortions, to pay for them, even though we consider them to be a horrible, horrendous thing to kill these babies. Along with their anti-Christian views of euthanasia, phys physician-assisted uh, suicide, embryonic stem cell research, as as priest Edmund Meek says, the Democratic Party has become the party of death. And opposed to that, a new report indicates that President Donald Trump has been responsible de for defunding almost 900 facilities that either perform or promote killing babies in abortions. Last May, the Trump administration pushed a new proposal 
for Title X that would prohibit Planned Parenthood and other abortion businesses from receiving any of those tax dollars unless they completely separate their abortion businesses from their taxpayer-funded services. That means housing their family planning services in separate buildings with separate staff from their abortion businesses and a denial of funds if they fail to do so. Federal courts eventually let the defunding rules move forward. So the Trump administration won on that. And eventually, Planned Parenthood and other abortion act activists left Title X program and gave up $60 million in taxpayer dollars. And I'm glad he did that. I have a personal story in this. Because you might think, well, it's easy for you to say you're not the one, you know, or you don't know what it's like, you know, to have an unplanned pregnancy or unwanted pregnancy. Today you were led in worship by a woman who actually is my daughter, Nicole, my third daughter. Her story is this. When she was conceived... Carol ended up having some problems, went to the doctor, and they said, you have a tubal pregnancy. A tubal pregnancy. Well, a tubal pregnancy means not only is the, the you know, you would, as you know, the, the baby uh, is now forming in the, the fallopian tube, but it's extremely risky. In fact, it could kill her. We were told if, if it burst while she was sleeping, she could bleed out and not even know it. It was her life was being threatened by her pregnancy. I believe, in fact, as the Bible teaches, that in fact you have a right to defend yourself against someone or something that is going to kill you. And so in that place, the the the, the Bible gives in fact the right to protect yourself in that regard. And only if it's the protection of your life, not because it's an emotionally draining thing on you. It's not because it's going to mess up your, you know, your vacation plans or, you know, or your career or whatever else. It's only for if, if your life is threatened. And because of that, we went further to discover. In fact, she had a surgery to look and see, and there was a possibility I, but before we did all of that, because we're believers, we prayed. And I was willing to, I was not going to let my wife die and the baby die. They both would have died if, in fact, that, in fact, burst and she would, she would die. So there is no really hope for the child in that situation. And I would protect my wife in that situation, knowing that we were taking a life instead of allowing for two lives to die. That was the issue. But we prayed. In fact, I remember having an all-night prayer meeting. The doctors went in to, to, uh, in surgery to see where the child was for, for removal, and the child was missing. The baby was, the, the baby was no longer in the tube. And we didn't know what to do with that. They did some more things later on, a few weeks later, and they found a mass in, 
you know, in her womb. And they said, there's this mass growing in your womb. Obviously, this is a problem pregnancy. And this, is, you know, this is not going to end up as a baby. And if it, even if it did, it would be just severely deformed. And so we want to remove the baby or remove the mass is how they put it. And we said, well, that's not really our choice. That's God's choice. And so it's not our choice to remove that. We have to leave that to the Lord. And uh, so we did. And she continued through her pregnancy. That mass led worship this morning. <laughs> I say that to say, I, 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 we, we do understand the, the painful dilemmas and difficulties of making those kinds of decisions in the process. But God has, in fact, made those, is, is, has the right to make those decisions as well. And we leave them to him in those, that decision-making process. The, the second thing that, uh, that I want to address is the issue of religious liberty. The, the Bible says, you know, that, that the interesting thing is, is Paul the, Saul, the, uh, Saul, who became Paul the Apostle, he was, he was after the church. He was persecuting the church. And, and at his conversion in chapter, three, chapter 9 of verse, and verse 3, it says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And, he, and then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, when Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Jesus has a vested interest in the church. It is his church. It is his bride. It is his, it is his idea. He said that he would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But the gates of hell are always pushing against it. Always pushing against the church. And always trying to weaken the church. When I look at both parties today, I ask the question, which party is pushing against the church and trying to eliminate its, 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 you know, its full freedoms, and which party is advancing the church or wanting the church to actually go forward? Now, you might say, well, one party is only doing it for the votes. Okay, that might be the case. I really am not interested, I, I, I'm not that concerned about the motives, which I can't know, as much as the actions, which I do know. I do know what the actions are. And I know that, that, that Joe Biden and his party advocate for the repeal of Religious Freedom Restoration Act. They want to repeal an act that provides the freedom of religious conscience rights of, of health care workers who decline to participate in abortions, on, on church-based adoption agencies that choose to place children in the homes with only heterosexual couples. See, this right has been given to the church and voted in, and we have this right that, that if you're a doctor and, and someone comes in and wants an abortion, and you are pro-life, and, you and, and you're Christian, that you can say, no, I don't want to do the abortion. Somebody else is going to have to do that. I'm not going to do that. 
without this right, the, the, the state law, the states can in fact take your license away, which in fact they have threatened to do. Or if you, like the little sisters of the poor, don't want to provide contraception or you don't want to provide the, the day after pill that kills uh, you know, the babies, that, that you have to do that. Joe Biden is all for that. He, he, he is on record at requiring the Obamacare mandate forcing religious ministries and groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor to provide abortion-efficient drugs against their faith conviction. Biden is already on record supporting the lockdown of churches also if there's the pandemic kind of increases. And he has already said, there are things that are happening against the church right now that why, why can't churches meet, but you can get in an airplane with 350 people stacked together and fly across the country. But you can't spend an hour in a congregation even if you're, you know, social distance according to the law and worship. Our governor has said, you can't sing. So we just yell on tune. <laughs> we, we, you know, we're protesting. That's what we're doing. Because we can't meet, but you can have thousands protesting. Is that not against the church? It is. I have to move quickly more because this is going to be a long message. I'm telling you already ahead of time, we're postponing having communion today till next week because I felt it would be, we would have to rush it base. I am letting you know that I have 12 pages of notes. <laughs> I normally have two or three. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's going to be three or four times longer <laughs> than normal. But I wanted to be more, con more concise in my wording as I shared it. So it'll be a little, just a little bit longer. The service will probably end about the right time, so no problem. The sanctity of marriage. Or the given over to sexual perversion. You know, when it comes to the curse, it comes to a nation that, is, that, that the blessing doesn't flow fully to... What we do, what, how we have uh, approached the perversion that, is, that has permeated our culture has hindered the blessing of God. In fact, God gave us an example years ago so that we, when we look at the scriptures, we could see what kind of damage is, is rightfully met out if we do not obey his word on this area. And it's in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't always happen to every country that way, but God did it to one nation as an example for us to know what it means to, in fact, disobey God in this area. The scripture tells us in Jude chapter 7, it says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal life. 
See, it's sec- what, what, what is it? Sexual immorality. It tells us in 2 Peter 2, 6, the turning of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example for those who afterward would live ungodly. Making them an example. Thankfully, God has not destroyed every nation in the same way or every city in the same way for their immorality. Just like Ananias and Sapphira was an example to the church. So you go, listen, this is God's heart. He's gracious to us, but we have an example here of what and what the heart of God is and what is, what, what is justice to a nation. That's why, in fact, you know, was it that, that I said, um, Billy Graham said, if, if God doesn't, in fact, judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we have certainly gone at least the lo- at the level uh, that Sodom and Gomorrah did. And, and so, well, when I say that, for some of you who have been long-term Democrats, I said, I said that the Democratic Party has changed. It, the fact is that in, in 1996, um, it was Bill Clinton... Bill Clinton, who signed the Defense of Marriage Act, he signed it. It was a Democratic president who signed the Defense of Marriage Act, defining marriage as a union between a man and a woman. It wasn't until 2015 that the Supreme Court, you know, changed that. I'm sorry, it wasn't 2015, but... the, 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 there was a five to four vote that in fact uh, undermined or dispelled the Defense of Marriage Act. It wasn't an act of Congress. It was an act of the Supreme Court with one vote, by one vote, said that the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional. So a non-elected, non-elected Supreme Court made the decision that our elected officials, that our elected officials wouldn't make or didn't want to make, and so it, they they trumped it, if you would. Now, Biden supported that. He supported what the Supreme Court wanted and said, in fact, in 2012, he supported the same-sex marriage, and in 2018, Biden Biden described conservatives who oppose LGBT activism as the dredge of society. Biden again spoke in June 2019. On that occasion, he called the Aurelian Equality Act his first priority. He so-called Equality Act would force biblical Orthodox Christians to violate their conscience on LGBT activism. It would also open women's sports and women's private spaces to biological males, undercutting fair play and privacy. On on broad coalition of diverse groups allied to oppose the Equality Act, including pro-lifers, religious freedom advocates, and radical feminists. So, Biden intends on supporting transgender activism policies that open women's and girls' 
restrooms, locker rooms, homeless shelters, prisons, sports to bio, and sports to biological boys that is a form of sexual abuse against women and girls. Why does your teenager have to be in the gym shower room with a biological boy? Biden has also said eight-year-olds can choose their gender. Now, I know that, that he has said, or his, his party has said, that that's not what he said. I have the quote. You can see what he said. Biden responded to a woman who said her eight-year-old transgender, eight-year-old, um, was being harassed. And he responded and says, I will flat out ju just change the law. Every element, uh, eliminate, uh, every, uh, eliminate those ex executive orders, number one. He added the idea that an eight-year-old child or a ten-year-old child decides, you know, I decided what I, what, what, uh, I decided I want to be transgender. It was saying, if I wanted to be transgender, that's what I think I'd like to be. I would, I would make my life, it would make my life a lot easier. There needs to be zero discrimination. He didn't say an eight-year-old shouldn't be making that decision. An eight-year-old can't make that decision. An eight-year-old doesn't know what in the world's going on. Did you at eight? Do you have any clue? I hated girls when I was eight. That all changed. Listen, people, we, we've done, we're doing so much damage to our children. But now, it's not just people making dumb decisions. It's being implemented in legal situations, in schools. There is a push right now. It hasn't passed yet, but there is a push that children can get on, in fact, it has passed for, for, um, for high school level, that parents don't even have to be um, told, but they, children can be given, uh, can be given um, you know, medication to start to, trans, trans, to start to change, to start to change, the biological, the change. That, I, I think about that. And it just, it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. What party is pushing that? And why hasn't that party said to those people who are trying to push it, those political people who are trying to push it, why haven't they stood up and said, no, we're not part of that. We won't be part of that. Why aren't they? Because they aren't against it. They want, they, they're, they're not supporting and protecting our children at all. Uh, the, the fourth one, okay? Are you with me still? Tell me, just, just, can, can I get 10 more minutes? Okay. <laughs> Cursing and not blessing Israel. There is a blessing when a nation supports Israel and the Jewish people. That, that is historical. God has judged the nations that he even used to judge Israel. But then they, in fact, 
you know, face the consequences of going against Israel. The prophecy of Balaam in, in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 9 says this. Like a lion, Israel crouches and lies down. Like lioness who dares to arouse her. Blessed is the, is the blessing, blesses you. Blessed is he who blesses you, O Israel, and curses is everyone who curses you. That's repeated over and over in Scripture. Balaam um, gave a prophecy about the Messiah, and he said in Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. He's talking about the Messiah coming. He's getting a vision. This is Balaam. I will crush the heads of Moab's people, cracking the skulls of the people of, of Seth, Edom will be taken over. Seir, its enemies, will be conquered. While Israel marches in, on in triumph, a ruler will rise in Jacob who will destroy the survivors of Er. This is basically the, the final war against Israel that God, Jesus, returns to. Now, what party is supporting Israel? In some ways, both parties say that they support Israel. But in December... 23rd, 2016, under the Biden, under the Obama-Biden presidency, just weeks before the transition, just weeks before the transition, the, the UN came out with a resolution that they've tried over and over and over again. That was to say that Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel. In fact, Israel does not have authority over Jerusalem. They said, we want to take Israel back to the 1967, you know, the, the boundaries. And they started that, to, to, to push that over and over again. But every year, the United States vetoed it, kept it from going forward, supported Israel. President after president after president. But on December 23rd, right before the transition of president, President Obama and with, you know, President Biden didn't step up against this, decided for the first time to let it pass. And the territories of Jerusalem, according to the UN, is not Israel's Land. In fact, it, it needs to go back to Jordan, go back to the, the, the Palestinians, and go, go back to um, the Muslim control. Just ask Israel who they would prefer as president today. Our former president actually tried to intervene. They spent lots of money trying to get rid of the, the prime minister of Israel without success. <clears throat> There's been tremendous peace treaties the, the United States has accomplished in just the last few weeks. The UAE, the United em- Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and the Sudan have in fact made peace with Israel. They're going to be in now, all of a sudden, the Middle East is starting to come, and there's five more nations about to make peace. The president has been nominated by three different countries for a Nobel Peace Prize. 
in any other administration, it would be plastered all over. But it isn't today. How about injustice to the poor? I want to say this. The Bible says in Psalms 82.3, defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy. Jesus had said this, the poor you, you will have with you always, but he had spoken over and over again about the need for us taking care of the poor. There are two different views. As I see it, both parties do want to help the poor. I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that we, in fact, as a nation, care about the poor. There are different views on how to do that, how that is done best. America is an amazing nation, and because of that, our poor are the richest poor people in the world. That's the facts. Over the long haul, I mean, there are, there are nations, small nations, that have done good for a short period of time. It always seems to fall apart. Sometimes the attempt for socialism to work and to kind of lift doesn't, it's never long term. It always brings it down. It always comes down eventually, even in some of the wealthiest nations that have attempted it. But in, um, in every case, socialism, socialism left un, un, you know, unguarded, uncontrolled, eventually becomes anti-Christian. Because it has to shut down the opposition. And free speech it always brings opposition to socialism. It always comes to the point that it doesn't work. Now, I believe, and we have seen a, a, a tremendous pushback um, in recent times. And there is, right now, there is a, an attempt, there is a an argument about whether our nation has systemic racism. Systemic racism. That's in our system. Is there systemic racism in our system? I believe there is a systemic poverty issue in our nation. I, do, I, don't, I think it, it goes across racial lines. That if you are stuck in poverty in our nation, primarily primarily those who are um, without the nuclear family, without the traditional family, when there is a, a single parent in the home, it is almost guaranteed that you'll start off in poverty. I mean, there are people who come out of it, but it is, that, that's the largest group. It happens to be that the, the black, percentage-wise, uh, are the ones who are more in poverty than the Hispanics, but it's close. And, and, but it isn't a race thing because first-generation blacks who come to our nation are, in fact, not in, uh, have a, only 11% of those who come into our nation as opposed to those who grew up in our nation, which is about somewhere close to 25% of the black community is in poverty. Is that systemic? I think there are some systemic things. I think that the biggest one, the one that really, I think, keeps impoverished people in, in poverty has to do with education. That if you can't, if you've not learned to read, which such a high percentage of those in the impoverished uh, cities in our nation have not learned to, it, it's, there's, there's issues involved. Some of it has to do with family, and some of it has to do with just bad schools. Schools that, that 
if there's not an equity in the, the, in the um, financial finances that go out to um, schools. Some, you know, wealthier communities have better schools. There's just no doubt about it. They have better, they, they pay their teachers better. Things can, can, you know, are better. The answer to that, the answer to that is, I mean, there's two arguments. One is we need to just pay more. And the other one is we need to give parents choice. We need to let parents choose the schools that they want their kids to go to. One group says we need to actually get rid of charter schools. We, we, we brought in charter schools. They're doing too well. It hasn't, it, it hasn't undermined the public school system, but the competition is too strong, and the teachers' union doesn't want charter schools. They want to eliminate char charter schools, even though so many parents love having their kids in charter schools. The other says, no, we need to expand it. We need to, in fact, bring in parochial schools. We need to bring in religious schools. If, if you want to go to a Christian school, you want to send your kid to a school that, ha that teaches the same values that you hold, why do you have to pay for everybody else's kids' schooling, but you have to actually pay for your own sc kids' schooling? Why not give vouchers and leave that? Oh, now there's arguments on both sides. But I want, I, I believe that the most systemic issue is the education issue. There's one party that wants to give parents the right to choose where their kids go. The other one, for some reason, says no. You do not have the right. In fact, right now in California, they're trying to eliminate all but public schools. And it has come to a, to a place on two occasions where they tried to eliminate homeschooling. Get it out of the parents' hands. Why? Because they want to secularize all of our kids. That's the goal. It's a moral issue. And it has to be dealt with. I, I'm going to have to skip a few things. I do want to bring up the last one, and that's this. The Supreme Court judges. We have... Um, the president has been fortunate based upon a law that the Democrats did when they eliminated the filibuster for, for uh, just on a, uh, because the Senate has a majority, just a simple majority, they could put in the Supreme Court judges that they wanted. Also, 300, I think, other federal judges. It's so important, and it's important for this reason. The Supreme Court judges are originalists. That's who he is pushing for. Years ago, a few years back, when really since the, the time of Bork, there's been a, um, a, a use of the Supreme Court to get past things that they couldn't get past in Congress. Our Constitution was made so it's hard to make laws. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be very difficult. It's, it's supposed to be very hard for the majority to make laws that suppress the minority. That's been the goal of the Constitution, the way it, it operates. It protects our rights. But the fear was, and it has happened, that if the, if the Supreme Court became political 
instead of just being, just playing what they call, you know, being umpires, this is calling balls and strikes, this is what the Constitution says and doesn't say, they could move things along without, without people who are there by the will of the people voted in. And that unfortunately has happened. Many votes, very, very shocking things have happened because of the Supreme Court and very, we have been very close to even more shocking things. Votes five to four in the Supreme Court. Roe v. Wade. The choice had been that the states had the right to, to d decide how, in fact, abortion would be uh, met out or allowed. Roe v. Wade, in a five to four, one, one Supreme Court, five to four changed all of that and made abortion legal until birth for the entire country. Five to four. Five to four was the vote of religious liberty. The, the, remember the little sisters of the poor who didn't want to have to pay for things, you know, their, their employees' insurance that would cover things that they were totally opposed to because of the religious view? Well, thankfully, the Supreme Court, in fact, sided with them, but only in a five to four. There are four judges that says, no, you don't have a right of your religious views. They don't count. They aren't important. School choice. Five to four vote. Ohio has Ohio put out a scholarship program that would give tax advantages for parents who sent their kids to private school. Because those parents paying for everybody else to go to school with their taxes, why can't they get a tax break if they have to pay for their own kids to go to school? There was a Supreme Court. It was, it was, a, it was also a, a, an attack on homeschool parents that was in, uh, in this uh, in this choice um, that was given. The, the Supreme Court voted on behalf of Ohio's scholarship program five to four, allowing for the program to go forward. One vote would have made the difference. Here's one that's real scary to me, gun rights. Now, I don't know where you stand on that. Some people think we shouldn't have any guns. Some people think that we should have the right to guns, and you have that argument that goes along. But if you can eliminate the second amendment you can eliminate the first amendment that's the point five to four vote the district of columbia versus heller and the argument was that gun rights are only for a specific a specific situation for a militia so that a militia can go you know you can add help your army with a militia the other is, it's the rights of the individual. For hundreds of years, it's been the rights of the individual. In fact, right after the Constitution was signed, the next year, you know what, they de what the government demanded? They demanded that every male within you know, battle age owned their own rifle and had, I think it was 12 or 14 rounds of ammunition. They made it law. So were they thinking of it's only for a militia? No, they were thinking these are the rights, but they even went further and said you have to own a gun. 
Now, that was a five to four vote. There were four Supreme Court judges that said, you do not have a right to own a gun. And if one more was in, because what had happened is D.C., the, the District of Columbia, decided that you could not have a gun that was, in fact, completely, it had to be, it had to be put, say, it had to be um, held apart. In other words, you'd have to have in a safe, you know, one, one part of your gun and then in your drawer another part of your gun. So if somebody came in your house, you could try to find it and put it together and find the bullets and protect yourself. The only problem was it was against the law to actually put it together because once you put it together in your house, you were breaking the law. And that, and four of the judges said, yeah, that's okay. Which meant any state could then not only outlaw gun ownership, but could confiscate your gun legally. How close is that? We're talking one Supreme Court judge. One. I mean, the, the, the issues go on and on and on. About the United States having rights over the United Nations. The United Nations demanded that, that the United States had 50 um, convicted murderers. Felons. One particularly had slaughtered, had taken, raped a 13-year-old, and then cut her body in pieces. And Mexico wanted that person back and went to the, 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 um, the, the international court and said, we have a right to have that person released. We, he, was, he was on death row, and they said, we have a right. And our government, our own Republican government, George Bush, actually said, let's fight for our right to give that, those, th those people back because Texas had convicted them. And Texas says, no, we have, we have our right. Our laws are more important than the, you know, than the world government. They don't trump our, our laws and fought it. It was five to four. Five justices said, no, the United States laws and the United States people have a right to their own laws. Four justices said, no, the, the, the UN court trumps our court. Four. One more. And the world governments, the world, the, the world court chooses to tell us what to do. Do you think having the right president choosing the right judges is kind of important? I do. I do. The Bible says, righteous exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And I'm going to close with reading how I responded to my friend. I know I'm way over. Forgive me. This is the longest sermon I've ever done, I think. <laughs> my response to my friend. Blood is thicker than politics. And we are blood brothers. You can see that, see from the response to your post, people have some very strong views these days. I believe, like many, this election could dictate the direction of our nation for the next 20 years. I have to say that Trump was not my first choice. I was a cruise guy. 
When I was not, when, when he was, when, when Trump was nominated, I thought he was brash and arrogant, but Hillary was not his moral superior by any means either. And neither is Biden for that matter now. His actions, although since he's been president, has been, has surprised me in a good way. Let me tell you a story. Quite a few years ago, I happened to find myself sitting on a six-hour ride to Keith Green's ranch with Randall Terry, the founder of Operation Rescue. Our conversation turned to abortion, as expected, and he asked me a question that was life-changing for me. He asked, do you believe that abortion is killing a human life? Yes. It isn't a dog, it isn't a cow, it's not a cat, it's human. And I've seen, I've had the, the privilege of seeing the ultrasound of my children before they were born. Yes. He answered, then if you believe abortion is killing a human life, it's murder, why don't you act like it? That question plagued me. Why don't I act like it? Why are so many people kind of flippant about the issue? Why did my friends say, well, I'm not a one, you know, politics isn't a one for, for just one item, one thing. I, I, I thought if, if I was in, you know, if I was in the United States, if I was born and I knew what I know now, during the time of slavery, one issue would be enough for me. If I was in Nazi Germany while they were slaughtering Jews, one issue would have been enough for me. Today, one issue is enough for me. And I told my friend, I said, I, I could never vote for anyone who is okay with killing millions of unborn babies. Unfortunately, over the years, I trusted candidates that said they were pro-life only to be dis disappointed by their weak stance after they were elected. Trump has been the most pro-life president in my lifetime, not by his words, but by his actions. We are one election away from really eating away at the abortion free-for-all that's been going on. I said to my friend, you said you are not a single-issue voter. I am. It's not that I do not care about other issues, because I do. I do not believe an eight-year-old should be cho choosing whether gender, what gender they want to be. I do not believe that we should be shutting down charter schools and keeping school choice from being available to our poorest children. I do not believe we should be packing the Supreme Court because we do not like that we, are, that we finally have some judges that actually believe in the Constitution as it is written. I can go on with these as well, but others have already made the point. The way I see it, it is if a candidate can be okay with killing millions of babies, then you're just about as immoral as any person can get. I choose the brash, arrogant bully who fights for the most vulnerable than the mild-mannered baby killer. I know that sounds harsh on my part. It is the policies of this next administration that will shape our nation, not the likability of the man in the highest office. 
I love you, brother. <laughs> and then I close. I love you, brother. Let's do lunch. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Can we pray? Tonight, we are having prayer. At 5 o'clock tonight, we're gathering together for prayer. I want to encourage you to either come with us or watch us online and pray with us. We're praying for our nation. Uh, it's a big thing that's going on. I will be, you know, next week, we'll be on the other side of this. And I want to tell you this in advance. Whatever happens, we live above all of that as followers of Jesus. Do you know if our nation isn't blessed, you can still be blessed. If our nation chooses to run away from God and we choose to go another way, even you, can, you are able to experience the full blessing of God on your life as you follow Christ and discover God's, God's peace, God's strength, and we'll keep our eyes open, Right? as things go down the road, however it happens and whatever happens. So, well, Father, I thank you because, Lord, your word is true. And, Lord, we are family. Lord, whether we agree or disagree on these issues, Lord, your, your truth is truth, but we still love one another because we can do that. The world can't. The world has no capacity. They oftentimes see this opposition as that enemy and that they're hated because they are the enemy. But as Christians, we have this ability because of your strength and your Holy Spirit in us to be able to go beyond that, to, to live above that and to truly love one another. We can love those, Lord, who don't love us. Your word says we can even love our enemies. And that is true because your strength is with us. I pray for your blessing. I pray for our nation. Lord, I pray that, God, you'd have mercy on our nation. Mercy. Because, Lord, we don't deserve what you give us, so we need more than what we deserve. We need your mercy, and we need your grace. We ask you, God, to bless America. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In that, I'm going to ask that mass of cells would lead us in worship. Unstoppable God, let your glory go on and on. Impossible things in your name, they shall be done. Unstoppable God, let your glory go Yeah.